Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundations. Like Judd, I served at the National Security Council, and I also served at the U.S. State Department and at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Guinea-Bissau, and we are joined by Paolo Gomez, a former executive director at the World Bank Group, founder of Constellar Investment, and a co-founder of the New African Capital Partners. Paolo ran for the president of Guinea-Bissau in 2014, finishing third. Nicole, do you want to walk us through the history of U.S. policy towards Guinea-Bissau? So as was the case with Angola, Mozambique, and other Portuguese colonies, the United States regarded its relationship with Portugal and military access to the Azores as more important than supporting independence in a country like Guinea-Bissau. Despite the fact that the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, PAIGC, led by Amilcar Cabral, controlled two-thirds of the country when it declared independence in 1973, the United States withheld recognition and opposed UN membership. That finally changed when Lisbon granted Bissau independence following the revolution in Portugal in 1974. The United States was one of the few countries to establish an embassy after independence. The first ambassador, however, served for four months before moving to an assignment in New York. In addition to the United States, there were Brazilians, Portuguese, and many of the Bissau government's allies from the liberation struggle, including the Chinese, Cubans, East Germans, North Koreans, Soviets, and the PLO. The United States was primarily focused on securing support for U.S. positions on West Africa regional issues, as well as votes in the U.N. and other international organizations. The government was not predisposed to the United States, but U.S. diplomats tried hard to curry favor, including by once borrowing the defense attaché's C-12 plane from Monrovia to help President Nino Vieira locate his old rebel camp in the bush. Partly because the governments of Guinea-Bissau and Cabo Verde both belonged to the PAIGC, the U.S. ambassador was jointly accredited to Cabo Verde. In 1983, the United States finally established a separate mission to Cabo Verde, possibly in recognition that the Capo Verdean branch of the PAIGC had split from the mainland in 1980. The U.S. government monitored the regional tensions between Senegal and Guinea-Bissau over the Senegalese allegations that the Bissau government was supporting separatists in the Casamance. When the chief of army staff, Asumani Mani, was dismissed for allegedly smuggling arms to the Casamance separatists, he launched his own rebellion. The country became a mesh in a year-long civil war, prompting the United States to close its embassy. It never reopened. The U.S. ambassador to Senegal is accredited to Guinea-Bissau, and it is one of only four sub-Saharan countries to not have a U.S. embassy and resident ambassador. Since closing the U.S. embassy, the United States has been concerned about the country's political stability. There have been three coups and one assassination of a head of state. Guinea-Bissau's status as a drug transshipment point has also been a major focus. The country at times has been called a narco state, and in 2013, the FBI arrested the former chief of naval staff in a sting operation. In January 2020, Guinea-Bissau had its first civilian-to-civilian transfer of power with the election of Amaro Mbalo. So, Judd, lots to dissect there. Do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or foreign policy failure in Guinea-Bissau? Yeah, this is this is a failure. There's 
been a debate, I mean, for a very long time about where we should have embassies. And back in the 60s, the Kennedy administration said, we're going to have embassies everywhere. And you mentioned, right, that we closed our embassy in Guinea-Bissau in 1998, which means for the listeners, there's one Guinea-Bissau watcher usually in Dakar. Maybe he or she works with some local uh, Bissau Ghanaians. The ambassador may engage occasionally, but we're really missing an opportunity, I think, to work with our partners in Bissau to address some of these security challenges around drugs, but also to make sure that our voice is heard because there are some issues that maybe Paolo will talk about in terms of concerns about human rights and sort of the pace of democracy and its trajectory. And I think, you know, it's a, it could be a small embassy or small mission, but I think that's been a failure to be absent from this country for as long as we've been. So Paolo, you're welcome to disagree, uh, but what would you tell the Biden administration? What should their priorities be in Guinea-Bissau? Well, thank you, Jude. I think it, with the Biden administration and with all context that we, uh, I think all of us went through uh, with the, the new style of diplomacy, I believe, with uh, the Biden administration compared to the Trump administration and also the COVID crisis uh, that we're still uh, facing in Africa, there's an opportunity to do a reset on the relationship with Guinea-Bissau. Small country, I don't think it's uh, you know, very big in the radar screen of the American administration, but it's, it represents what really is West Africa in terms of the, the mixture of ethnicity and culture. In Guinea-Bissau, basically, you have all the component of the ethnic groups of Senegal. You have also the component of the ethnic group in Guinea-Conakry. So it, it could be a, a, a kind of a place where you could measure the pulse of what's going on in, in West Africa, at least in terms of the three countries surrounding Guinea-Bissau, Senegal, Mali, and, and Guinea-Conakry. So, and the access to the sea and the whole biodiversity capital of Guinea-Bissau, it's an important place where you could also test and look at how we are doing in terms of climate change at the ad agenda. So I think there's an opportunity to do a reset, but how to make sure that we are in the radar screen of the Biden administration is the big challenge. Can I just make one note before I ask Nicole how we do this? In researching for this episode, I went on the website for the U.S. Embassy, the, the virtual embassy to Bissau. They hadn't even updated that there's a new president. They still have the same president all of this time after the fact. And I can't imagine that would have happened if we actually had an, an ambassador and embassy there. So, Nicole, some of these are really big, building an embassy. Uh, but how do we do some of the things that Paulo is talking about? Well, it's a low bar. Um, it may be a big deal to build an embassy, but it's something we know how to do, right? This is straightforward, not terribly complicated. It just really takes some interagency focus. So, as you said, not having an embassy since 1998, it's offensive, right? And I think it's a hard thing to say to Guinea-Bissau or to say even to countries in the region that we're fully engaged if we don't have a presence of any kind. And, you know, why should we bother? Well, for all the reasons that we talk about all the time in, in foreign policy, this is about regional security, regional stability. It's when you have even the potential for a narco state. That's something that it really, really affects the region and certainly should be of great concern to us, affects all other parts of the world. We see that in Mozambique. You have human rights concerns. You have the opportunity for building democratic governance. These are all our bread and butter issues. 
And again, it doesn't feel like this should be that complicated within the interagency process to be able to advance. So this is really about USAID and the State Department, the State Department leading and USAID considering a mission, which they could or could not do, to reprioritize this. There's no doubt that an intrepid NSC staffer uh, for West Africa could certainly help encourage this process along. So Paolo, do you have a big idea, even outlandish, to put on the table when you think about advancing this relationship? What we can put forward as an entry point for this resetting is the fact that we have an enormous natural capital. And if you imagine a scenario where the natural capital of Guinea-Bissau is destroyed, it will have enormous consequences for the region. It's act as a buffer for the region. And I think it's really important for us as Guinean, Guinea-Bissau, to engage the U.S. for sure. We have to kind of think through strategically how to re-engage and to keep ourselves on the radar screen of the U.S. administration beyond the drug aspect, because I think we are there in many occasions for the wrong reason, although we, you know, we haven't cleaned up our mess on, on that. But I, I, will ha- I will be much more proactive on how we use our ability to protect our natural capital. And we have done well, actually, with all our instability and uh, uh, weak institutions. There have been a kind of a, a consensus between the government and the civil society to protect and to preserve that natural capital. We have, for example, a foundation called Foundation Bioguine. I was the chairman for for three years. And what we have done is that we have set up a foundation in England, a trust, and we have managed to raise close to $2 million. And that money, we use it as an endowment fund to finance activity, to protect our biodiversity with the civil society. So it's a good example of how we have done it. I want to underline here that close to 20% of our countries is a protected area, but we don't know until when it's going to happen. We are the only archipelago in West Africa, archipelago of 88 islands, very, very fragile, but well-preserved, you know, with pieces unique in the whole uh, West Africa, you know, is the only colony of salt hippopotamus in the world, birds very unique and, and others and, and turtles. So that would be my entry point. Now, who will listen to us in the State Department and USAID? That's the thing. I think we need to map out because there's no need to start just going in a scattered manner to speak to everybody in the US. You have to map out who you are talking to and use them as your ally to bring more attention from the U.S. Department. And probably that will trigger a a frank discussion about the embassy. It's just unbelievable that that we couldn't agree to to have an embassy in Bissau. Again, as I say, it could be a a very good platform to engage in several players in the country. And I think it will be good for the U.S. To go back to the issue of of the drugs, you, you also know that the pressure that the U.S. has put in Latin America in terms of combating drugs has created a bifurcation of the traffickers toward Guinea-Bissau, but being the closest part. So, you know, we we went through that process because of the strategy from the U.S. and being a very weak institution, a small country with a small army and with all the problems in the army, we we became a a fertile ground for all the traffickers who were using Guinea-Bissau as a a transit, not as a, a, a place for consumption. And that transit we know where he was going. He's going to the Middle East, he's going to some country in Asia, and end up funding some other terrorist group across the world. 
You know, Paula, that's it's such an important point, both, all of the things that you said, but let me just underscore your point about climate change because the new UN Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change talks about the vulnerability of islands and, you know, a, a country like Guinea-Bissau with its islands, but also its wetlands is particularly vulnerable. And maybe this is something that we need to bring John Kerry and his team into the conversation as well. So this is the last question for you. Nicole mentioned very briefly about Cabral, and I'd like you to talk a little more about who he is and what he means to Guinea-Bissau. The museums, the murals of Cabral are really quite dramatic. And can you talk about him and how he's captured in art? The BBC, I think, did a, a survey of leaders of the century, and Cabral was in that list among the top. A question was asked to Mandela before he died. Who do you think was the, the, the brightest theorician of, of, of the liberation movement, Issei Cabral. Fidel Castro had huge admiration for Cabral, but yet Cabral was a, a leader who didn't use ideology to drive the process for the liberation. He was a, a very pragmatic leader, a brilliant agronomist uh, first. I mean, he was one of the brilliant students in Portugal, very open-minded. I mean, his first wife was a, a Jewish lady from Portugal. He has his, his software on all the movements that was created for the liberation. He was engaged very early with the MPLA. He had, I think, some role in even in Mozambique a Pan-African ahead of everybody. Unfortunately, we lost it before the independence. And so I like to play it to say that what happened to us is basically like someone designing a computer and putting there a software and then suddenly take out the software. So you, you kept the hardware. And that's what's happened with, to us, our independence. We lost our major software and we had a beautiful country where we couldn't figure out how to run it. And how is he uh, captured in art? How do you see him sort of the iconography of Cabral in Bissau? Oh, everywhere, everywhere. You know, you have now young artists designing uh, some of the most iconic Cabral pictures in the buildings, in houses, uh, in my own house in Bissau. I have a, a huge uh, portrait of Cabral by the young artist, the local artist. You see him with T-shirts, in social media, uh, yeah, people see him almost like a Che Guevara with all the style because there have been some very nice pictures from a, an Italian journalist who visited the liberation area during the, the guerrilla. And she was very good in uh, taking pictures of Cabral. And that was also very useful to convince uh, some of the Nordic countries at the time where we needed the, the recognition before the independence by, by Portugal. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.